Welcome along to the Go Play Soccer podcast with host Manchester United Academy coach Tom Statham. At Go Play, our aim is to bring people together from all across the world to discuss the beautiful game. Tom Statham here, and today we're going to preview the Euros with Grant Wall from the Grant Wall Football Podcast and Joshua Robinson, who covers European sports for the Wall Street Journal. So, Grant and Josh, welcome to the Go Play Soccer Podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great stuff. And we're going to start with you, Grant. Just tell us a bit about yourselves, about your background, and uh, you know, for those people that that maybe aren't based in the United States, where you know you both do great work. Yeah, I've been covering soccer since I became a professional journalist back in 1996. Um, I was with Sports Illustrated for 23 years. Um, they got new ownership, and I departed last year. But I am a full-time soccer writer. Uh, that full-time aspect started in 2009 as the sport got bigger in the U.S. And I was wanting that to happen. It finally did. And, yeah, I've been covering soccer full-time uh, ever since, written a couple of books. I uh, have the podcast you mentioned uh, on television a fair amount, too, over the years. So uh, it's been pretty exciting to cover the growth of the sport. And I'm the European soccer, car, the European sports correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. Um, I've been back in Europe since 2012 for the Journal. I actually grew up in London as well, even if I don't sound like it. Um, and that entails mainly covering soccer. Um, now I'm in Paris. I'm also the co-author of a book called The Club about how the Premier League turned into the international sports and business monster it is today. Um, and most of my time is is spent covering uh covering the beautiful game great so we've got two fantastic guys with us to to go through this unique tournament and uh the european championships as as we used to say in england it's sort of called the euros now is very different this time because previously you'd have a host country um and obviously england hosted in 1996 got to the semi-final and all the heart, heartbreak of getting beaten on penalties by germany but this time we have 11 host cities. Um, how do you feel about that, Grant, that, that difference from the traditional way of having a host country? Well, it was a great idea before the pandemic. Uh, you know, like, at least I thought it was a good idea. I know some people might disagree with that. But um, for, from a fan perspective, I can get some of the complaints because you're going to have, if you're a fan, you're going to have to travel by plane. It's not like having... Uh, just you know, one country hosting the Euro or even just two, and you can you know take a train around. But at the same time, um, you know, it's been complicated a little bit more with the pandemic. They lost a couple of host cities in the last few months due to not being able to guarantee a certain amount of stadium capacity. Um, I'm in New York, so I'm not in the middle of like Josh's of, of what the COVID situation is now in Europe. Um, so I'm curious to hear his thoughts, but, um, you know, it's for me, not a bad idea in the first place to do this and spread it around Europe. Um, and, and we'll see how it goes. Yeah. So I'm going to be watching from Manchester. You're going to be watching from Manhattan, but I believe you, Josh, you're going to be traveling to some of the games. Yes. I'm based in Paris and, uh, you know, Hopefully the the regulations allow me to kind of dip in and out of countries without having to do full quarantines everywhere. Um, and, you know, Europe is still a little bit behind in recognizing, you know, 
travel travel uh, or or bending travel rules for people who've been vaccinated. But that's happening slowly, and uh, you know, I, I kind of like the idea again of multiple host cities like that because it does make it feel like the Champions League. Um, and that's one of the great things about traveling around for the Champions League is these two two day little stops in, you know, it would have been Bilbao and Rome and and others. Um, as it stands now, it's it's certainly a little bit more complicated. And I was actually in favor of them consolidating and putting it entirely in a country like England, um, because you you do lose something else. You know, it's a trade off. Um, and the Euros that I covered in 2016 in France were really such a great event because France is a football country, obviously, and the infrastructure is such that you can get everywhere with a train and, you know, in, in five, six hours tops. So it's it makes it a party for the country. And I think maybe we would have lost a bit of that even without the pandemic. Yeah, and, and being in France, being in Paris, let's go straight to France uh, as one of the favourites, probably the favourite for this tournament. But they start off in the group of death, in group F. Um, France have Germany, Portugal, who are the holders, and Hungary. So what's the talk in France about this group and, and how do you see their squad and, and their chances in the tournament? I, I think France have to start out as favourites, the defending world champions. Um, and even though there was that reversal four years ago here at the Stade de France against Portugal, um, they were the best team in that tournament too, I think. Uh, and... You know, it's it's pretty special that France can take a World Cup winning squad and then decide that all is forgiven with Karim Benzema and add a striker of that caliber to uh, to what is already an incredible team. Um, so the group is hard for sure with with Germany and Portugal there because they're always difficult to play and have only gotten better in the past four years. But I think France remain heavy favorites. And the, the biggest obstacle might be France getting out of the group, really, because they play two games in Budapest and one in Munich. So they'll be playing, you know, they'll, they'll be playing Hungary away as an away fixture and Germany as an away fixture. So that's pretty tough. There's a lot of pressure there. And I know three teams potentially can get out of the group, but, uh, you know, how much of a disadvantage is the fact that Paris isn't one of the 11 cities? Uh, you know, the weird thing about France is that they're one of these teams that doesn't always do that well with the French public on its back. Um, you know, we saw them wilt under the pressure a little bit in uh, during Euro 2016. And then at the World Cup in, in 2018 in Russia, when very few French fans traveled, uh, they really came into their own. Yeah, good point. Good point. So what about the, the squad? Who do you think, you know, the obvious star players are, but is there, are there any other players that you think are, are just on the fringes of the team that might really use this competition as a, a launch pad for their career? It's hard to look at a squad that won the World Cup two years ago and say, or three years ago, and say anyone is is really on the fringes. But there are some some exciting talents around in French football, and I mean the the wealth of talent in this country is, is so incredible that you can even start to look at guys like Kamavinga, um, who who has been in kind of the edges of the of the national team for the past year, um, and is someone who could take the next step if he. Um, if he ends up in the the final 22, I believe France are still waiting, correct me if I'm wrong, to, to cut a couple of people. That's um, great, yeah. If, if France is just really, uh, really blessed with such a wealth of talent at the moment that, you know, it's tough to look past the guys who you expect to light up a tournament like Mbappe, like Benzema making, Benzema making his return. And of course, Paul Pogba, 
who, who still is one of those guys that might not have a very defined role, but makes that team tick. So go to Graham. What, what are your thoughts on Paul Pogba? Because obviously Pogba is someone with my Manchester United connections. He's a, he's a big favorite at United, but he gets criticism as well. So I'd, I'd love to hear your take on Paul Pogba, the, the Manchester United and France player. I mean, I, I love Paul Pogba. I think he's a, a terrific player, obviously world champion. He remind, He's sort of like a modern-day Lucas Podolski the last couple of years, though. He's one of those guys who seems to play better for his national team than for his club team. And, and we could have a whole long discussion about that. I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by those types of players. But he's, you know, Pogba, very influential with France, um, seems to really enjoy playing with his teammates. They have a really good chemistry. Um, and I, I think he could have a, a huge impact on this tournament. I mean, just like Josh says, I mean, the talent on France, it's crazy to see the French players who aren't even going to be involved in this squad or to see why somebody like an Imeric Laporte would switch to, to Spain because he really wasn't getting any games for France. Um, and so on paper, France is the favorite. They're the obvious favorite to win this. And yet I would also issue one point of caution that I was just watching the uh, French under 21 team in the European uh, championship and they went out unexpectedly in the quarterfinals to the Dutch under 21s and that French under 21 squad had ridiculous talent on it as well but just because you're the best team on paper doesn't mean you're necessarily guaranteed to win the tournament yeah we shouldn't forget the French propensity for heartbreak and self-sabotage <laughs> yeah and, and then especially when they come up against Germany because you know they're going to be playing Germany in Munich and for me I'm, I'm probably quite a bit older than you two guys, but my first, the World Cup that was really had a big impact on me was 1982 in Spain. I was about 15 then. And that semi-final, um, the 3-3 three, three and, and and all that that, that happened there, um, you know, the Batistan and, and Schumacher collision. And, you know, that, that was so dramatic um, and, and one of the greatest games ever, in my opinion. So do you think this game in Munich is going to be similar and it's going to be, something that we talk about for, for years on end? I think, I think it would have the chance to become that if it were a knockout game. Um, the format of the, of the Euros since Euro 2016 has, has been a bit strange and I think taken away from the group stage a bit because we have an entire group stage now that lasts over two weeks to eliminate all of eight of 24 teams. Um, so there's, you know, there are really very few ways that a very strong team can go out unexpectedly early um all of that of course is to build in a round of 16 which is an extra an extra round of games more tv money the usual um but it, it takes a little bit away from from a group stage and and from the appeal of those those huge uh those huge heavyweight matchups because in in a very real sense you know a draw suits both of them just fine i would also add just you know the to what josh is saying the format i I wish the UEFA would go all the way to a 32 team tournament instead of 24, because I like the idea of the group stage having real jeopardy in it and only two teams advancing from the group, because yes, this is a group of death with France, Germany, and Portugal, but it's likely that all three will advance. And we all know that four years ago, Portugal won the tournament 
after finishing third in its group. And, you know, so 2014 formats, I don't like very much. And UEFA could certainly go to 32 teams and you might not have a total group of death because you're going to spread out the teams a little bit more, but I still think it would make the group stage have more at stake. Right. Grant's absolutely right. You know, if the idea of 24 teams is to bring in more federations and kind of spread the wealth even more, just, you know, go full hog, go to 32, reinstate the kind of jeopardy of the the group stage and and make it fun again. And plus, you know, that next tier of UEFA teams is getting stronger all the time. I mean, you know, like in Iceland, which was the darling of Euro 2016, didn't make it this time. Yeah, there's Norway, Norway, Republic of Ireland, Northern Ireland. um, All these teams, I think, would would have added to the competition. So I I think I I certainly agree with you that the group stage is is almost like a bit of a warm-up. You know, it's almost like the pre-season to the actual tournament that starts in the last 16. Yeah, although this season, I think a lot of players and and coaches would agree the last thing they need is more games. Because And we can get into this, I'm sure we'll discuss it as as we go through more teams, but I think one of the defining themes of this tournament is going to be fatigue. Um, We had the short preseason after the extended first season of the pandemic, um, which just left guys totally fried, especially in the Premier League. I think we saw it up close and no single league is sending more players to the Euros than the Premier League. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying, Josh, is that these group games, because the big nations are, are very likely to get through anyway. You might see a bit of experimentation, like in a, in a preseason way, where you know it's very it's very unlikely that some of the top players and certainly ones that maybe are coming back after injury are going to play all three group games. So you might see some rotation and some experimentation in these early group stages. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and also too, I like the they have twenty six players on each team, and kind of don't understand why that's not a regular thing uh, at, at tournaments, but. I think we are going to see injuries. Um, players are, are tired. They played a ton of games under a lot of stress this season. I hope we don't see a lot of injuries, but I think it's good. To, it's good to have 26. Right. Of course. I, mean, I said 22 earlier, but 26 is, is the special provision for this year. And um, I agree with you, Brian. It's, it's a great idea. Give, give, give them more options. Yeah, and, and Portugal are a team with lots of options um, in this group of deaths. So, you know, they have players from Manchester City like Bernardo Silva and Cancelo and, and Diaz and obviously Manchester United's Bruno Fernandes and, and Jota from Liverpool. Now, I think they could, obviously, Cristiano Ronaldo, doesn't, uh, you don't even need to mention him really, but they're going to be a threat again. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is a better Portugal team than the one that won the tournament four or five years ago. So, um Andre Silva, by the way, was absolutely outstanding with Eintracht Frankfurt this season. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, we saw Jota have a, a real impact for Liverpool. I think that position over the years, actually, the, the number nine, the center forward, has been a, an issue for, for Portugal. And I feel a lot better about, you know, what they've got in that spot right now. And... And obviously, Cristiano can still bring it, and I think is highly motivated, you know, to set the international goal-scoring record or make it, you know, even you know farther beyond where he is. So, um, I, I think Portugal's a, a real contender to to win this title again. There's some one thing I find so interesting about Cristiano's role 
in the in the Portugal team. And we saw it four years ago in the final. He goes off after about 20 something minutes with it with an injury. But he's coaching from the sideline. He's standing next to Santos for the rest of that night, clapping his hands, giving tactical instructions, really getting guys up. He gave a he gave a talk at halftime in the dressing room. And he um, you know, there's a real sense around that Portugal team that you know he has the charisma and guys are playing for him too not just for the shirt um and even if he's you know not at the doesn't have the physical capabilities that he used to he he his very presence in that team and again he may not play 90 minutes of every game uh just brings them something else he he delivers such belief to those players that that i think they think they can do anything yeah, absolutely. It's going to be fascinating to see. Um, I'm thinking that we all are going to take Hungary to be eliminated from this group and the big three to go through. I'm bummed out because Sobeschlai is not going to be available for Hungary, and he's a really exciting player. Uh, just moved to Leipzig and hasn't actually played yet for Leipzig, but absolutely terrific with Salzburg. And as a romantic of sorts, I would love to see Hungary start to regain what it had with its glorious legacy from the 1950s and sixties that we haven't seen for a really long time. They just got a really unfortunate draw with this group. I mean, you take enough points, you know, you take a point here or there and you can at the very least keep one of the big three out of the next round. Yeah. Well, they, they've got two of their games, obviously in Budapest. So that, that, that could be a big advantage for them. You know, that the games against Portugal and France, they're playing at home basically. So, now that that could really, um, as you say, Josh, make them a bit of a spoiler. Okay, so that's the group F, group F, group of death. But the group that everyone, certainly in this country, in in England, is concerned about is Group D, where you've obviously got England and you've got the old enemy Scotland, and you've got a couple of countries that, that England have played quite a bit recently: Croatia, who England lost to in the semi final of the the last World Cup, and then the Czechs who, who England played in qualifying. So they, they know a lot about these teams, but each team is going to provide a lot of difficulties for, for again, quite a young but exciting England team. What are your thoughts on that, Grant? You know, this is an interesting group. It seems like England and Croatia play each other a lot. Uh, so there's going to be a, a lot of familiarity there. But, um, you know, this is a Croatia team that, has been to a World Cup final just three years ago, still has a tremendous amount of talent, if maybe a bit more on the age side at this point. Um, and, you know, once again, you know, three teams might advance from the group. So, you know, you're, you're not sure about how much jeopardy there is here, but, but it'll be interesting to see England play Scotland and, and see how that shapes up. I think this is a tremendous England team, though. Uh, it's a bummer that Trent Alexander-Arnold, after all the discussion about whether he would make the roster, is not going to be available now uh, due to injury. But yeah, we've you know, already got all, three right backs now. Only three. <laughs> uh, but it's it's a team that is, I, I think, good at every position. Uh, and, and so the one thing that was interesting to me, and this gets into how you talk about major tournaments where there was this indication from Gareth Southgate that it would be a failure not to get to the semifinals. Why don't you just talk about winning the thing and wanting to win it? And, and maybe that's where we as Americans get 
get some static sometimes globally when like an American player will say, I want to win the world cup. And I understand like why the U S winning the world cup isn't something that, you know, people are expecting and, and nobody is, but like you play to win the game as an NFL coach once said, and I, I'd like to see Gareth Southgate talking about, we want to win the tournament. Yeah. I think that's, that, that's what he says publicly and privately. I'm sure privately he's saying we want to win the tournament, but if he, if he comes out into in the English media and says, we're going to win the world cup, then that's going to be front page <laughs> headlines in every, every newspaper on TV. And that's going to just put a lot of pressure on him and the, and the squad as well. So I think I'm sure he absolutely believes that they're going to win. Um, that's the message that he's saying in the camp. I think it's just a media strategy to try and take a little bit of pressure off and, and you know, not have all those screaming headlines. But, but I'm glad you bring that up. Such an interesting cultural nuance. The, the idea that, you know, you have to show ambition, but not too much ambition, uh, just enough so that the players believe they can do it, but not so much that the media then says, well, you said you were going to win it. What happened? Yeah, and we, we've had so many. You you, you were brought up in uh, England, I believe, Josh, and yeah. so you'll know that. That and I was I fell victim to it too. Is that every tournament we went to is we're going to win it, we're going to win it, we're going to win it, and then it was disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. England and I think, expects. Yeah, and it, it was, and, and I do think that's one of the things Southgate's done is that he's he's brought in a bit more of a a normal expectation and said, look, we, we're decent, and and certainly at the last World Cup where England flew under the radar a little bit. They weren't expected mm. to get so far into the semifinals. And that, that probably played into the England advantage, really. And so I think he's trying to do a similar thing now. Which is funny because I think this is maybe the most exciting tournament squad England's had in at least a decade. Um, you know, the, the depth of talent is there. Uh, it's a little bit of a shame that, you know, a month ago we'd have been talking about you know, he has selection problems at, at half the positions. Um, Southgate's choices are slightly more limited now by injury. As we said, Alexander Arnold is out. And it's a shame that uh, uh, that Lingard didn't make the cut in the end. Um, but the Henderson, idea, Henderson's injured, Maguire's injured. Yeah, yeah. But the so he, he doesn't have quite the resources that we thought he was going to have. You know, and, and we don't know what kind of form Grealish is going to be in either. Um, after that long injury layoff. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of guys coming back from injury, but Scotland at last have got some really good players. You know, Scotland have been in the doldrums for, it seems like, 20 years or so. I mean, again, when I was young, Scotland were fantastic. You know, players, well, the world-class players, Dalgleish obviously comes to mind, but even players, you know, like um, Archie Gemmell, who was a player when I was young, uh, as, a, as a Derby County fan when I was a kid, and Bruce Riach and all these, and Hanson. Joe Jordan, they just had so many top players and, and they went through a, a difficult patch. But now if you look at their squad, they've got, again, they've got two great left backs in Robertson and Tierney from Liverpool and Arsenal <laughs> respectively and, and McGinn and then Manchester United's very own Scott McTominay, who's obviously I'm, I'll be hoping does really well. Uh, so they've got some really good quality players there and they play two games at home at Hampden Park in the group stage. So they could really, really put the cat amongst the pigeons in this group. And, and so we I know how well supported they're going to be. Um, Scotland supporters, I think, you know, they, they may not appreciate the comparison, but they could be the Ireland supporters of, of these Euros, the way Ireland were five years ago, you know, taking over French towns and, uh, and kind of animating the party over here. I also think just when you look at how deep Wales went in 2016, 
you know, you don't have a global superstar like a Gareth Bale on Scotland, but, you know, Wales showed anything can happen, especially in this 2014 Euro. And so uh, I think they're going to be uh, a team that every all, everyone who's a neutral around the world, a lot of them are going to be rooting for Scotland because I remember when they qualified for this tournament a few months ago, and it's been a long time since Scotland's qualified for a major tournament. Um, it was really cool to see how the Scotland players celebrated, how important it was to them. And, and so I'm looking forward to seeing them play and, and obviously a game against England is just going to be fun. Absolutely. But they, I mean, that's where they could upset, you know, Croatia, like you said, an aging Croatia team, you know, with Scotland with some good young players, all that enthusiasm, I could easily see Scotland beating Croatia or at least getting a draw. And then with the Czechs, you know, you've got Thomas Suchek, who is a West Ham player. Um, he's their big player. But again, that that's for a country that's so good and traditionally produces so many good players. The, the Czechs possibly are not the strongest team um, that you'd expect from that, that particular country. I mean, there's an interesting subplot here, too, off the field, right? In the sense that the Czechs have a player who has been convicted of a racist incident against uh, a player from a Scottish club in European competition. And um, just as as Scotland is sort of a a neutrals fan favorite heading into this, I think, I think the Czechs are sort of a a neutrals team they don't like as a result of of some of this stuff and the way that the Czechs have responded uh, to this incident where it, it certainly seems like a lot of that team uh, is really unhappy that their player was uh, found to be guilty by UEFA of, of the, the racist incident. So uh, the fact that the, the Czechs and Scotland are in this group is, is interesting, as is the fact, um, you know, that uh, the Czechs are, are starting to get, to get a, a little of a reputation internationally that they don't want. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think everyone wants the Czechs to come forth and get booted out. Everyone wants England to win this group, surely. Um, we want Scotland to come second, but we want England to beat Scotland about 7-0 at Wembley, but Scotland to come second, which leaves Croatia possibly coming third. But, you know, then they'll fizzle out. That's that's what I'm thinking that, that everyone's wanting. So fantastic. Um, so I think at this point, you know, what one of the things that, that I know about you, Grant, is that you're going to be in Manhattan for these championships. but You've covered um, a lot of the the most recent Euros, and I know that, that America, especially since 2008, has has been much more fascinated and much more involved in the European Championships than previously. So you know, tell us about your experiences as an American journalist at, at these tournaments and, and how this, this tournament has grown in the eyes of the American soccer public. Yeah, I mean, the Euros are, this is the biggest soccer event on the men's side of the year in the United States, on the women's side, the U S women are playing in the Olympics uh, after this tournament. And and that's a big event as well. And the U S men have world cup qualifying starting later this year. So that's a big deal. But, you know, even without a U.S. team involved, the euros have become a major event in the United States since 2008, which was the first year that ESPN showed every game from the euros on cable television that every just about everyone has in the u.s and it was very successful i mean they they got 
good viewing numbers, uh, and they've been showing the games ever since. That will be the case again this time around. ESPN has, is showing every Euros game. They're heavily promoting it. They've hired a lot of really good people to present the games, broadcasters, people in the studio, uh, including people from Europe. Um, and so, you know, before that in 2008, it was a much different deal. It was really hard to find Euro games on television in the United States. Like I remember Euro 2004 being in Boston where I lived, uh, and you had to go to a bar that had it by pay-per-view and pay 20 bucks a game just to, to watch a Euro 2004 game. Uh, Euro 2000 was really hard to find in the United States. Uh, in terms of like how I've covered it over the years, it's been interesting. I covered it for Sports Illustrated. First year I covered was 2000, where Sports Illustrated set me for the final week, uh, where I was in Rotterdam ahead of the classic final between uh, France and Italy, uh, won by Trezeguet on, on a golden goal. Um, and then in 2004, again, I went for the final week when Greece won in Lisbon. Um, and then 2012, I was there for the whole tournament, uh, doing television stuff for Fox sports, which wasn't even a rights holder, uh, for that tournament and work writing for sports illustrated. So you could see how the tournament was growing in the United States. Um, and, and that's only continued, uh, you know, the U S has become a, a country where the biggest soccer events are presented as if it were a big time soccer event in the US. And I think you credit television for that mostly. And I would add that the, you know, there's an element of piggybacking on the success of the Premier League here in the United States, um, especially, you know, in the the kind of NBC era of the Premier League, where, you know, their current deal is worth a billion dollars. Um, and what you have is, you know, all of these characters that American fans are seeing on Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings uh, in the States are now in this international tournament. And as we said before, the Premier League is providing the most players to the Euros. So there's a continuity there for all of these fans who have tuned in the other 10 months of the year who are ready and, and willing and more sophisticated than they've ever been um, to, to watch an international tournament. Yeah, that's great. And and um, one of the that's one of the things, this rise of, of football awareness, really, that we discussed when I was a guest on your podcast, Grant, and you were very kind um, in mentioning my podcast a lot on your show, which which is great of you. And and so I'd just like to to thank you for that opportunity and and say to people listening to this, Grant will uh, football. I nearly said soccer podcast. There, I got a lecture from Grant about this podcast is a soccer podcast and his podcast is a football podcast, and he's he's American. But the, the Grant Wall football podcast, um, you know, is fantastic for for people that are interested in in football. He covers, you know, it does cover quite a bit of American soccer on there, but but soccer from all over the world. Um, so that's another one to download. So thanks for that opportunity, Grant. I really appreciated that. Thanks. Cool. So let's go to Group A. Let's have a look at that now. And Italy, they're the, the big team in that group. Um, Grant mentioned Wales earlier, who did really well in 2016. Turkey, I think Turkey could be a team that does extremely well. Um, that's not one of the big, you know, major hitters and, and Switzerland as well. How do you see that, that Josh, the, the Group A panning out? Well, Turkey had a, a couple of 
massive wins in in World Cup qualifying. They beat Holland and Turkey in uh, Holland and Norway in the space of about three days uh, back in March. And there's, we, you know, we've always known there's a lot of talent there. I mean, Turkish domestic football is not the most stable league in the world, but they keep producing players. Um, but obviously, Italy, you know, coming after coming after the disappointment of not qualifying for the 2018 World Cup, um, are still in that rebuild. Um, you know, especially after you kind of tear down the monuments they had in defense, um, it's been, it's been up to Roberto Mancini to kind of find a new identity for this Italian team. And I, I don't know that they're quite ready yet to, to make a huge impact at a, at an international tournament. Yeah. They've still got Chiellini there, but other than that, a lot of the squad of players that are on the up rather than established internationals. Sorry. I was just going to say, yeah, <laughs> it's definitely true. I mean, like, um, this is a really balanced group. I think, you know, I can make an argument for, for any of these four teams uh, to get out of the group. Um, you know, the U S just played Switzerland in a, in a friendly, so got a, a chance to take a close look at their squad. And it's never one that is going to knock your socks off, but it's pretty steady. The Swiss have a good record of getting out of the group stage at major tournaments. Um, and, and to me, the most intriguing team here, like Josh says, is Turkey. Um, yeah, you never, it's weird sort of the, the variety of outcomes over the years with Turkey, right? They got to the, the world cup semifinals in Oh two. I don't think they've qualified for the world cup since then. And they've had some good runs, uh, in the euros occasionally as well. So, um, I, I think as, as a neutral here, I kind of like to see this Turkey team make a run and I think they're capable of it. Turkey run. That's good. Um, but the uh, they, they sort of remind me of Greece a little bit, you know. So when Greece came out of nowhere, the, the Turkish team are very strong defensively. You know, the the, the big name players probably Soinchu from, from Leicester City in, in the Premier League. And that first game they play is against Italy. And that could be a really important game because if, if they can beat Italy, which they're very capable of doing, that could really set them on a momentum that sees them you know, top that group and, and really advance to the next stages with a lot of confidence. You would just hope that Turkey's a little bit more expansive than Greece in 2004, um, <laughs> yeah. which, uh, you know, a team built around parking the bus before we even had that expression and uh, and set pieces. Yeah, and, and yeah, absolutely. Then we look on to, to Wales. Wales play um, Switzerland in their first game uh, in Baku in Azerbaijan. And again, that could be a real key game because if, if Wales were to lose that game, then they're going to find it very tough to qualify from that group. Um, Gareth Bale is obviously the big player, um, but the Robert Page is, is in charge and not Ryan Giggs. Uh, and from my point of view, a, a lad that I had as a young player at Manchester United, Tom Lawrence, I was disappointed that, that he wasn't selected in that. Um, but yeah, do, do you see Wales doing anything, Josh, in this tournament? It's they're a hard one to judge. I mean, we know that we know the the kind of sure values in that team. We know there's quality, um, especially around Bale. But um, I was watching them in their friendly against France the other night um, earlier this week, and again they they didn't offer very much, and they went down to the ten men very quickly. So it's you know they still remain a bit of a mystery um, head, heading into this tournament. And but as as Grant said earlier, you know we've seen them make a run before, and they know you know, you really can't undervalue tournament experience like that. The core of that group is the core of that squad is still the same. 
um, and they'll uh, they'll remember what it was like five years ago and what they had to do to to keep charging. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think I think all of us agree that Turkey could possibly be the the surprise package that that does really well out of that group. Italy, possibly not the the greatest squad, but if we go to the next group, Group B, there's a team in Group B that probably all of us think might be the ones to to rival France as the favourites, and that's Belgium. I mean, yeah. I mean, like this is a team that's had this generation of talent for for several years now, and it's you know it's older, and yet they're still capable of of winning this tournament. You know, there's going to be questions about Kevin De Bruyne and his ability to recover from these facial injuries that he got in the Champions League final. Right now, it sounds like you know he might be gone for most or all of the group stage, but tremendously influential player for Belgium. And then, you know, Eden Hazard, Roberto Martinez is, is going to find out, you know, how much he can get from him. Uh, I think Real Madrid fans would probably be amused if Eden Hazard has a, a terrific Euros because he certainly hasn't brought it much due to injury for Real Madrid. Um, but this is a team that, you know, got to the world cup semifinals. Um, and probably feels like it should have like won the Euro or at least gotten to the final five years ago and, and kind of screwed it up. But, you know, personally, and maybe it's because I have a book chapter on, uh, on Roberto Martinez in my most recent book, but I think he's sort of undervalued as a coach. Um, and I understand, you know, a lot of that's based on Everton and, and some of the defensive issues that, Everton had late in his tenure, but, you know, I, I remember working with uh, Gus Hiddink on American television during the world cup in 2018 and Gus and I going back and forth, he had no respect for Roberto Martinez. And I was like, world cup semifinals beat Brazil, you know, has handled uh, a Belgian team over the years, I think extremely well. And, um, and so, yes, I, I, I do think Belgium can win this tournament, um, and you know, like, do they have as much on paper maybe as France? No, but, uh, but I wouldn't rule them out. I feel like we have the conversation every two years, you know, this is the, is this the moment for Belgium? Is this the moment for Belgium? Eventually you're going to run out of tournaments. That's the problem. Um, you know, and we've seen the, the kind of core of this team together for a long time, De Bruyne, uh, Lukaku and others, but the, you know, Lukaku did have an amazing season with, uh, with Inter. Um, but you know, is is I'm beginning to wonder, is this is this the last one for them? I guess, you know, with Qatar only a year away or a year and change, maybe it's not, but sooner or later they have to break through or start turning over that squad. And and as you said earlier, Josh, you know, the there's a lot of tired players coming to this tournament, and I think that's where people like France have got such a deep squad that they will be able to rotate, whereas the, the Belgian first eleven is really strong, but is the depth strong enough that if De Bruyne is injured or needs resting or Lukaku um, mm-hmm. in the same situation needs a break, then it, it, the people coming through, is Benteke going to come through and be as effective as Lukaku maybe in that situation, whereas, say, France have got such a deep squad? Um, it'd be interesting. Um, the other thing that they share with France is that they don't play any home games at all. So all their games will be in Copenhagen or St. Petersburg. So that's a fair bit of travelling for them as well. Um, whereas Denmark, 
who are you know, the other real team in this group that, that's coming in with a bit of form. There's Finland and Russia almost also in this group, but Denmark play all their games in Copenhagen. I would say with Denmark, it's a little like Turkey. They've been great in World Cup qualifying so far. This is like a form national team, and they don't have any total superstars. Obviously, people know Christian Eriksen, but they're a terrific team. The chemistry is is good, and not only are they winning World Cup qualifiers, they're destroying teams lately. So um, if I had to pick sort of – uh, a team to maybe go deeper than than a lot of people might be expecting. Uh, I, I might go with Denmark in this tournament. Yeah, Denmark. I mean, they're they're an interesting one. Um, you know, they they were for a, for about a generation uh, a team that was always there causing trouble for for tournament favorites in group stages, and then faded for a, for a couple of cycles. Um, and I'm. I'd like to see them do well, but for some reason, and I, I can't quite explain it, I look at this group and I just have a feeling there's a lot of draws and not a lot of goals in it. Interesting. We'll, we'll see. Let's let's move uh, on to Group E, where you've got Poland, Slovakia, Spain, and Sweden. Um, you know, a really interesting group. Everyone would think Spain would be the top team in this group, but I think the other the other three teams are going to give them some stiff competition. What are your thoughts on that, Grant? You know, I mean, you, this is another one of those balanced groups where I could I can make a case for any of the four teams getting out of the group, or we could see three teams get out. So, you know, Poland, very reliant on Robert Lewandowski, terrific player. Um, and, and so I guess then the question is, will that be enough? Um, this is a Spain team that doesn't have a, a single Real Madrid player on it, which is kind of a crazy thing to even say. But uh, Luis Enrique has it's still Spain, a lot of talent at his disposal. Um, I don't think this is as strong a Spain team as we've seen over the last decade. And in most major tournaments, they're a younger team. I think they're, you know, moving toward world cup 22, uh, maybe more so than trying to win this tournament. And then a Sweden team that in world cup 2018 went very deep in that tournament, uh, even without, a, a huge superstar, you know, maybe not all that different from Denmark, but like lots of chemistry uh, and could do well in this tournament too. What are your thoughts, Josh, on Group E? Well, I'm really fascinated to watch the Spain team. It's it's a Spain team that's kind of reinventing itself. And after being uh, kind of philosophically similar for over a decade, you know, we, those were, those guys were immovable for the longest time, right up until Ramos, who, uh, who ends up being the the last one of the, uh, the old guard to go. Um, and, and I mean, the, like Grant said, the, the lack of any Real Madrid players is really wild to me, but for the first time in a long time, we're looking at a, a Spain team. That's not, you know, that's not tens at every position. Um, now, you know, they have had the luxury of almost signing a new player in Emmerich Laporte, who chose to play for Fran- for Spain rather than France. Um, but so much young talent around there. And you wonder as well, you know, if this is the one where we see the emergence of a Ferran Torres. I know he's already at a massive club in, in Man City, but, you know, is is this where he becomes, you know, the next Torres, and I, and I don't say that in the in the sort of Chelsea years, uh, Fernando Torres, but more thinking uh, the Liverpool deadly finisher. Yeah, I, th- I think that 
evolution of this Spanish team is going to be really interesting. I think they, they could well be uh, having a big advantage in, with the three games in Seville because Seville is the hottest uh, the hottest city in uh, in Europe, and you've got three other countries there: Poland, Slovakia, and uh, Sweden that aren't necessarily known for their warm temperatures. So that could be a bit of an advantage for for this Spanish team. But uh, it'd be interesting to see how they go. Final group that we're going to look at is Group C, which has the mighty North Macedonia and along with Ukraine, Austria and probably the group favourite Netherlands. Uh, What's your take on this group, Grant? I mean, this Netherlands team, I would think about potentially having a chance to win the tournament if Virgil van Dijk was available and if Frank de Boer was not the coach. Uh, But... (laughs) I'll be honest with you. Frank DeBoer has failed upward more than any manager uh, I can think of in recent years. This was a guy who obviously had success at Ajax, but uh, didn't last long at Inter, didn't last long at Crystal Palace, and didn't last long at Atlanta United, and somehow becomes the Netherlands national team manager, which uh, is strange to me. And and by the way, to guys like Clarence Seedorf, who, uh, you know, haven't gotten opportunities like that to manage the Dutch national team, even though I know he's had a, a bit of a up and down managerial career himself. But I could see the Netherlands being a team that gets out of this group, but doesn't necessarily go very deep in the tournament. It's not a necessarily difficult group. I don't want to underestimate North Macedonia. They're one of the best stories in the tournament having qualified. And obviously they beat Germany in a world cup qualifier this year. So any team that's capable of doing that is capable of doing well, you know, better than expected in this tournament. Um, Austria is a team that, Reminds me a little of, of like Switzerland. They're, they're one of these teams that um, they have a way of getting out of the group, but not necessarily wowing you in any way with the way they play. Um, and, and yet they rarely totally disappoint at a, at a major tournament. Uh, and Ukraine, um, you know, Andrei Shevchenko is, is coaching this team and that makes it interesting. Um you know, and it's funny to me, like, it seems like Yarmolenka is a guy who's going to like play until he's 80 years old and might be 80 years old right now. He's been with that Ukraine team forever. But uh, in a group like this, I could see Ukraine getting out of the group. Uh, and so, um, you know, do I think any of these teams in Group C are, are going to go deep in the tournament? I don't. Do you agree with that, Josh? Well, first, Grant, tell us what you really think about Frank DeBoer. I think you were holding back a little bit. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think I, I agree with Grant's assessment. I mean, I, I do find this Holland team fascinating. Um, and I, I think one of the better stories of, of this year of this year is is following the narrative around Memphis Depay. He's he's after a difficult time at Man United, and you would know um He's really had a had a renaissance and at Lyon and has been become such a dangerous player who offers you so many different things, either through the middle or coming in from wide. Um, and, and the talent is undeniable. Um, now that now that he seems to have um, the, the kind of right focus and certainly managers who understand him um, and, and realize how to harness that talent, um, I think he could really explode at these euros. Yeah, definitely. And 
So, uh, Josh, you're the lucky guy that's going to be going to some of these games. What's the first game that you're going to? Well, I'm hoping uh, to get over for England's opener, but we'll see. Uh, so much depends on quarantine and uh, whether you know whether I'm able to to get back and forth easily. Um, but it might have to wait. Just I might have a slightly delayed start to the Euros and get over for uh, England Czech Republic first, which is the day after England reopens completely. Oh, on the twenty, we all hoping that the twenty first of June, that magical date over here when the world gets back to normal. We're hoping, so <laughs> yeah, that that would be great. That would be great. Well, the the tournament starts on Friday, the eleventh of June. Turkey are traveling to Rome to play Italy. That's when it all kicks off. And like you said before, it's, there's a couple of weeks of group games, and then it really starts to get serious with the round of sixteen. But Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your your great insight and your knowledge um, of informing people about this tournament and, and especially with that American slant as well. I, I really appreciate it. It's been a, been a great conversation. Um, and, you know, I hope possibly if if we get through the group stages, then towards the end of June, if, if we can carve out a bit of time, maybe we can, you know, preview the, the knockout stages as well. That would be a lot of fun. It'd be a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And, uh, you know, I hope you enjoyed that on the Go Play Soccer podcast. See you later. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. And if you have a question or comment for us, or if you'd like to take part in one of our podcasts, please email podcast at goplaysoccer.com.